Well, hi, everybody. It's Kim Winter from Logistics Executive Group. My pleasure to be with you again, talking to business leaders around the world. Um, today's session, I'm delighted to have um, a long-time associate, uh, Dr. Ben Hansen, who hails currently from the Middle East, but Ben has operated from uh, the UK, uh, Australia, which I think Australia calls home, GCC, uh, and throughout the GCC, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Oman, um, and you're currently running a practice here in Dubai. Welcome, Dr. Ben Hansen. Thank you very much, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Great. Thanks, Ben. And, and full disclosure, of course, uh, to our audience, when I, when I previously had contact with one of our guests, uh, Ben was actually my uh, GP back in Sydney 20-odd years ago. And uh, believe it or not, I credited him with saving my life back in 2001. So, uh, Ben, you're one of three people that I, I credit with saving my life. <laughs> Well, thank you. Well, it was it was definitely a good save. <laughs> well done. And uh, so, Ben, I'd, as as per normal, of their guests, I'd like to get a bit of a feel for your upbringing, your background, um, how you ended up getting uh, into into the medical field, and also what's taking you wide and deeply abroad with your your medical profession. So maybe we start with the upbringing in Australia. Sure, Kim. Uh, so I grew up in Sydney, uh, in the southern and eastern areas of Sydney, and uh, I have two other brothers. And my my mother was a school teacher, and uh, my father was a property developer, and they had a very happy, very happy marriage, and it was a, a very sort of stable childhood. Uh, three boys, so it was very competitive. Uh, <laughs> even even the dog was male, so it was uh, we, we had uh, it was very very uh, very challenging in in that aspect. Um, my father was a uh, he was a very clever businessman and and very optimistic, and he was always looking for opportunities. And even in the worst of times, he always managed to find the the silver lining and to find an opportunity to. Uh, to to do a business deal or or a, a new a new project, um, and he never let any tough times get on top of him. Uh, so I so yeah, that, I had that influence growing up to you know always be looking for where the opportunity is rather than focusing on what's the current situation now, no, no matter how bad it is. So what was the so what was the segue between school time? So you're rural or you were a city city guy? So I grew up in the city, but my father was a property developer in the rural areas. So I spent a lot of time uh, on farms and in in the country as well. So all of my holidays were you know on the farm with the horses, with the with the cattle, uh, wearing gum boots, uh, you know th that sort of thing. Um, well, I certainly spent a lot of time in, in both locations. So actually, that sort of translated later in my life, where I, my, I, I bought a, some rural land and built a house and have my own little sort of getaway, uh, getaway farm, which is mostly kangaroos uh, and wombats. Uh, so uh, it, I was lucky to have that that upbringing uh, and to have that business exposure at a very young age. Uh, I did do some work in my 
father's office. I mean, it wasn't really that much. He was trying to groom his children to take over the business without actually telling us anything about the business. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and it was all terribly boring, uh, you know, just trudging over property, over land developments and blocks for sale and endless talking about councils and uh, environmental regulations. And it was just like, like you know, verbal Valium that just completely turned us off. So um, I, I, I knew that that's what I didn't want to do, uh, which, which in hindsight I should have probably done. Uh, in, in Australia, I mean, really the only way to, one of the, one of the few ways to make money is, is in property. Uh, to, to really generate wealth. It's pretty difficult to make a buck in Australia otherwise. Uh, so um, medicine came about. I just found it really the subject was fascinating and I actually really enjoyed the, the idea of doing work that was meaningful and, and actually sort of giving back in your work uh, and also the, the close sort of personal connection that that you get that intimate connection in, in the job that you don't tend to get in too many other fields of work. So it's quite a, you have quite a special relationship uh, with people in, in medicine. And, uh, and I found that, that side of it, you know, very appealing. Of course, my, my parents were not encouraging at all, um, at all. So that, that was the last thing they wanted yeah. uh, to have a, their son at university for seven years uh, doing something that you know was completely off their radar, uh, but I mean, in the end, they came around. But it was certainly not like I was pressured into doing it. I was really pressured the other way. Uh, Great. So, so I recall uh, meeting you probably to, when I started this business about 1999, 2000 in Sydney. You had a uh, private uh, general practice, as I recall it, in one of the most eclectic parts of. Sydney and certainly one of the most eclectic parts of the world, I would imagine. I mean, yeah. anybody and everybody was living in Darlinghurst and it was, it was quite a scene in those days. Uh, and uh, I recall your practice, you were very well known in the city. And uh, even though you're in private practice, uh, I know that you used to take all comers and uh, anybody really in need you'd look after. So it was uh, fairly dynamic times. Yeah, it was, it was, they were good times back then. I didn't appreciate it at the time. I don't think we ever do, but uh, the, the good thing back then was, uh, you know, you really could take all comers. You really, really could uh, deal with the, you know, the executive businessman and the, the Supreme Court judges to the homeless people, to the people, the schizophrenics, to you, the, uh, the sex workers, everything. It was, it was a complete mix of mums and dads, uh, a few kids, not that many. Uh, it was a lot of fun in terms of people. Uh, I think you know the world has changed, and I think a few you know twenty years ago, people were more happy to be individuals and happy to be different, and, and that, but that was not frowned upon. It was sort of in, in, almost encouraged, or it was viewed uh, in, in a way that didn't have judgmental or, or negative uh, emotions attached to it, or, ju or judgment from people. So I think I think the I think it's a bit harder to be so individual these days in person. I mean, we see people behaving like that online, but in real life they're fairly bland. So it was it was nice to have a, a real mix of people. Whenever my friends got together, my parents.
people around me. I, I found it, it stimulating and also I learned. Uh, it was great to learn from, from people of different backgrounds, not just countries and religions and races, but, but everything. Okay. So, so you, uh, you and I sort of disconnected from uh, early 2000s. I was travelling around the world setting up this business and uh, in about 15 different places around the world. And we ran into each other a couple of years ago here in Dubai and uh, quite, quite by chance uh, as a matter of interest. And uh, you, you were telling me then, and uh, I'd like you to tell the audience a little bit now about your, your travels internationally, what drove you around the world to the, the various places that you've worked and, and what you're doing now in Dubai, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the current medical uh, situation that's going on uh, where you're sure. um, So I, I've always enjoyed travelling, and uh, and I've always done some sort of work or education uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, after you know, more than twenty years in business in Australia, where I was actually I was the owner of the business as well as uh, operating, as well as working in the business. I think things, everything just became too predictable. Uh, I really felt like I was a surplus to my own existence in, in a business sense. Everything was stable. Uh, the business was running well. The uh, patients were stable. And the, the challenge had really got out, really disappeared. So I actually was pretty keen to, to do something different, to really push myself, uh, learn more about uh, the world, uh, do some more, you know, do my, use my skills on a bigger scale. Uh, and uh, I came to Dubai, um, first time was 2000, uh, so 1998, uh, on a stopover, and there was nothing here. The Burj Al Arab had been built, uh, the Jumeirah Beach Hotel had been built, but it was a, a like a small road through the desert to get out to those places. Uh, there was just nothing here. Uh, it was hot. It, it was it was boring. I was here for twelve hours, and I swore that I would never come back. I'd done it. Ticked the box. I uh, didn't see the purpose of the place. Um, and you know, uh, back and then in two thousand thirteen, I came here for a conference at short notice or training course, and and I loved it. Uh, it was vibrant. It was positive. Uh, it was dynamic. There was a lot of change. Uh, it was complete opposite to you know, a lot of the Western countries where things have stagnated and to try and do anything was a huge effort, especially to be innovative or, or to be entrepreneurial uh, is it, very difficult because uh, you get shut down in so many different ways. But here it was open um, and I really found that interesting. I found the culture and the, the mix of cultures to be very interesting and, and I really like the, the positive spin in the media, um, that everything was always upbeat, it was always happy talk, even if it wasn't completely um, real at times. It was a nice change from being in that really negative Murdoch uh, News Corp, uh, Fox uh, environment, uh, and not just, I'm not singling up that company, but really most of them. Uh, the UK is, is the worst, uh, but Australia is not far behind in terms of the negativity and uh, it was actually nice to be somewhere where that you didn't have that negative brainwashing going on all the time. So I really loved it here, and it took me sort of uh, two years of trying to to move here uh, because uh, you know it's if you're coming as a highly skilled Western professional, it's actually quite difficult to to get here. 
in the healthcare field. It's very difficult. Uh, uh, we're not the demand, the the demographic that's actually in demand. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of effort just to get here, and it's uh, certainly been a challenge since I've been here. So you established yourself here, but I know that you've worked right throughout the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Oman in particular, um, and you've worked on a number of consulting projects. Of course, the healthcare space here is booming. Um, has been all the way through the last 20-odd years or so. So you've been consulting to institutions, to hospitals, to medical organisations, setting up both on the clinical and uh, the business side. Maybe talk to us a little bit about where the business meets uh, meets medicine. Sure. So the uh, obviously uh, this is a far more commercial system uh, than... Australia or the UK, uh, it's much much more based off the American system, but then it has its own twists. It's a, like a combination of an Indian and American uh, healthcare model. Uh, my my expertise has really been uh, in terms of startup operations and turnaround projects. Although I also assess you know, currently uh, you know, stable operations in terms in terms of improving. Uh, efficiency, improving performance. Um, my initial work was in Saudi Arabia. I was lucky I was working for a very high-profile organisation, uh, one of the King's you know, universities. And through that that role, I managed to meet uh, you know, very high-profile people. Then I came to Dubai and I was working for Miras, who, which is the private holding company of uh, the ruler of Dubai, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, who's also the vice president of the UAE. Uh, and I was once again uh, sort of thrust into a very senior position. Um, and uh, so it was a very steep learning curve to learn about the culture, to learn about the system, to learn uh, what things were permitted and what things weren't, uh, really to understand how the, the businesses work, how strategy works in this environment. Uh, I've previously done some work in Southeast Asia, and that's a completely different, completely different uh, mindset there. Uh, and Dubai is its own, you know, country in a way. There is nowhere else like Dubai in the in the whole planet, I think, uh, in terms of how business is done, uh, because it's such a cultural melting pot. Uh, so it was quite a challenge to to learn how things work. But then I also worked in Abu Dhabi. And that itself was completely different again. So probably more like Saudi Arabia, but uh, Abu Dhabi has its own unique features as well. In Abu Dhabi, I was working for uh, a project that was uh, a PPP with Department of Health and uh, and Mubadla. And that was a healthcare technology project. So setting up the, the first health information exchange in the entire region, which is basically connecting all the patient's files in every hospital and clinic into a centralised accessible record uh, in order to you know, improve patient safety and uh, and also to improve the efficiencies in terms of cost. So I've, I've managed to see and be around uh, a variety of projects, uh, all of which were uh, struggling in one way or another. And my role was to really try to stabilise uh, the project and try and move things forward. And I guess, you know, one of the, the key things that I've, I've found uh, in this region, well, 
is uh, because uh, the, the culture is very tribal and because there's such a mix of cultures here and people are not permanent residents, uh, there's not a lot of teamwork. Uh, people are very much individuals focused on their own outcomes in the workplace. Uh, there's a lot of very unhealthy politics in many organisations here that tends to paralyse uh, a lot of companies here. Uh, I mean, this ha can happen anywhere in the world, but it's particularly common here. So actually breaking down those silos and trying to uh, call a truce you know, amongst the, the warring factions is, tends to be the first step of, of moving any, anything forward here. Uh, because things can rapidly break down into complete paralysis. Otherwise, we've seen uh, one of the, sorry one of the things we've seen introduced here uh, in uh, the UAE in the last few years has been compulsory medical insurance. Um, what sort of an effect, from a business perspective, has has that had on um, the the economic environment, the business environment, from your perspective? So any, uh, this is a this whole region is a trap for new players in the healthcare sector as well as the information technology sector. Now, nothing is ever what it seems. So and that this uh, this is a great question because while there's compulsory uh, health insurance, uh, there is such a low minimum level of insurance which is essentially almost non-existent. Um, that in the end, still the majority of the population here effectively have no, I don't want to say no health insurance, but you know, they have cover for emergencies and that's about it. So the compulsory insurance has not had the boom on the market the way that the that it was touted in the media and touted by the big four consultants and, and touted by uh, even the, the regulators themselves who are very keen on getting more investment. So anyone who's wanting to uh, invest here or open a business or purchase a business really needs to get beneath the headlines and really look at the details very carefully uh, because uh, what you see on the headlines and what you see in the hype, this wonderful positive news, which I, which I enjoy, it, it has a downside to it in terms of that if you can't say the, the negative side, if you can't say the the problems, then you tend to get a, a, a very rose-coloured picture of what's going on. It's very easy to to lose money here if you don't know what you're doing. Well, from a business perspective, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, I because I'm still insured in Australia, where I'm a resident, um, and in Hong Kong, where I'm a resident, New Zealand, <laughs> where I'm a citizen, and and here in Dubai, where I've been a resident for nearly twenty years, and. Uh, I, I must say, whenever I've had cause or reason to go to a hospital or through the medical uh, process here, which has been not irregularly, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting on and uh, things things tend to happen from time to time. Um, I've been totally and thoroughly impressed by the speed, the efficiency, uh, the accuracy, the diagnostic uh, outcomes, all of the above. So um, it's... As you say, it's, I'm, I've not been living in America for a very long time, but uh, you know certainly things work here very well when you are under that insurance system, at, at least at a uh, business level. Oh, definitely. The, in terms of accessibility and speed, uh, the, the system here is terrific. I mean, they've done a lot of good things here, 
and they've made a lot of improvements uh, at a very rapid pace. Uh, and they're always looking on how they can do things better. Uh, of course, there's there's constraints, and there's always some areas that you can't touch. Uh, but for the things that can be improved and things that can be optimized, it's it's always a goal. That's why I like uh, Dubai in particular. Is that at least it's a goal. Uh, other places in the world, including my home country, it's not a goal. It's all about maintaining the status quo. It's not about actually trying to improve. So this is one of the reasons I'm in this region. It's I find it stimulating. Well, that's a pretty good uh, segue, actually, because I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the comparison between uh, an extreme growth, emerging economic area um, like the, the GCC and certainly in particular the UAE, um, where we've both now got a fair bit of experience compared to Australia, where we're both uh, residents and, and you're a citizen. Um, I, I suppose one of the, the existential uh, uh, pervasive issues uh, of life for us in the last year and year and a half now has been um, the whole issue of where the pandemic has met um, the field of logistics to a certain extent, or the sure. logistics of managing a pandemic, both in the early days uh, when the, the, the virus struck, uh, to now where we're seeing this, this massive uh, rollout globally, where logistics has never been, certainly in my lifetime, uh, under the spotlight in the way that it is, logistics and supply chain, and, and nor, nor either. So has the medical profession with uh, people coming out of, 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 of the, the shade to be seen as heroes, to be seen as lifesavers, the first the first responders, the people working in horrendous conditions all around the world, and, of course, now into the third and fourth waves of all of that. Um, talk, talk to us a little bit about what the experience as a medical consultant, practitioner, and business person in, in the last 12 months has meant. What, what's changed in the landscape? What sort of impacts? Has it had on your thinking and the way that you operate? Sure. So, in terms of, I'll first of all talk about the from the clinical side, and then I'll talk about the business and the logistics side. So, from the clinical side, um, this time last year I was back in Australia for a visit, and then I got stuck by the borders being closed. Uh, so I decided to work clinically um, just to to help out because you know I had skills and uh, there was a pandemic. Uh, rapidly evolving and and I wanted to do my part and uh, it was very challenging very challenging because the uh, there was so much misinformation and disinformation um, about uh, the virus and about uh, how it was spread and uh, what we could do to protect ourselves uh, many people didn't take it seriously uh, I was very fortunate that I had uh, the correct masks, the N95 masks. By accident, I actually had a supply of them with me. Um, I was doing a job here in Dubai with a lot of dust, and I bought a box of N95 masks because I was coughing because of the dust. Um, and I just happened to have a supply, which I, I took home with me because I uh, early in the pandemic, I travelled home through Hong Kong. So I, I had a box of masks with me, and I used those box that one box for the entire for their entire nine months, uh, which I mean these masks are meant to be lasting hours, and I was being forced to make them last you know, months. Um, 
So, um, you know, it was very challenging. Patients would come in to see you. They'd be coughing. They'd be sick. They were convinced it was not COVID, but, of course, of course, they had no idea if it was or wasn't. Uh, I managed quite a few cases of COVID. I saw very early on the cases of long COVID, this terrible chronic disease that, that occurs in, you know, perhaps 10% or more of, of infections where people are debilitated for months or, or even longer. It's still going on. Uh, so the disease was rapidly in terms of the knowledge was evolving, it became much more multi-system disease, not just a respiratory thing. And of course, the government and the health authorities kept changing their position, kept changing the rules. Uh, we were in lockdown for a while, um, a fairly strict lockdown. Australia's a very strict country. And, uh, and watching the people sort of submit to, to that process uh, and watching the interaction between the the government, the police, the health authorities, and and the population was was uh, really uh, quite fascinating and sometimes disturbing. Uh, and so, they didn't always and they didn't always get it right. Then the uh, no, no. number of outbreaks, uh, complete um, mess of a situation where they thought things they had things under control, just making schoolboy errors. The problem in in Australia is that because a, a lot of the system is government run i mean the good thing is that there's a very strong public health system so they were able to do very effective contact tracing the problem is though that all of the, the decision makers including the the doctors uh the government doctors are public servants so they have no idea about the impact of their decisions on business uh on employment um they, they have no idea no idea whatsoever and no real empathy for it either so uh, Australia took an approach of trying to eliminate the virus and to, to a large extent they've, they've certainly suppressed the, the virus. Life's gone back to normal in Australia and New Zealand now closely and not fully uh, in terms of restrictions, but in terms of the economy, uh, it's far from it because uh, some places, particularly Melbourne, has had several long lockdowns and the business has been completely decimated, you know, completely destroyed. People are never going to recover. Uh, one of the options the Australian government gave people was to access their superannuation, like their pension fund. And many people withdrew money out of their pension fund early on. And, of course, since then, the share market went up a lot. So these people have lost a lot of their retirement savings, which they'll never recover. Uh, so it's a it's a very delicate um, balancing act between um, controlling the virus, uh, controlling the death rate, controlling the rate of this long COVID, and then at the same time uh, allowing economic activity to continue in in some form. Uh, Australia went to the extreme uh, of of closing everything down, uh, and it certainly saved a lot of lives. Uh, from COVID, but uh, the mental health impact, the economic impact uh, has cost lives um, and we don't really know how to balance that up yet. Uh, in, in contrast, uh, when I came back to the UAE uh, later last year, uh, things were relatively open. There were restrictions. Uh, I thought they managed the pandemic very well here. Uh, mask use was compulsory and, and people generally were pretty good at wearing masks. Uh, for a very dense population, people were trying to do social distancing. Uh, 
the you know there wasn't too much negativity in the in the news. There wasn't too much fear. Uh, in Australia, they have one new case, and it's 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 breaking headlines, literally breaking headlines on all news channels. One new case has been found in Western Australia today. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, and it causes fear, which then stops investment and it stops new employment, and it yeah, it paralyzes business. So it's not not smart. Uh, the only problem that's happened in UAE, unfortunately, that you know the the wave of infection in the UK just before. Christmas uh, came here because of all the tourists, and and now we've gone from having like a couple of hundred cases a day uh, to you know consistently two thousand or more cases a day, which for a small country is a lot. Uh, so and that number is not coming down. So and we we see that once this virus gets a foothold, uh, it's becoming more and more infectious over time. That it's harder and harder to get under control. And just just when you think that we've got it under control, I mean, India thought they had it under control, and now they're they're facing complete disaster in in a fairly short amount of time. So things can rapidly spiral out of control. So so speed is is important, and that's that's generally where most places have failed is they've been very slow to react, and they haven't prepared their crisis action to be fast enough. Uh, to be able to really sense when things are turning around, instead, instead they wait for the numbers to get really bad and then they act. And what we know with the pandemic is, by the time you act, that the virus is already several weeks ahead of you, and uh, you can quickly get to a point where, where it's too late. And that's what we've seen clinically. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting is, uh, you know, uh, the initial infections in China, which caused a, a, sh- a shutdown of. You know, several parts of China uh, really exposed the the world's you know weakness and fragility in terms of supply chain. That all of a sudden, manufacturing of not just pharmaceuticals, not just healthcare, but it, in terms of IT and in terms of almost every industry, uh, everything was starting to grind to a halt because there was always one critical component that was unavailable. Even the reagents, the testing material for COVID tests, one of the key reagents was all made in China, and we couldn't we couldn't get it. So uh, I, I think you know the key lesson out of COVID is, is having backup supply chains uh, and not relying on this you know global uh, global uh, economic model of comparative advantage. That you know countries need to manufacture uh, their own essential products. And can't just rely on getting it from another country, particularly China. Uh, you know, it's, even if it's even if it's a lot cheaper, you have to have your another supply coming from somewhere else that's not China dependent. Uh, and I think it's really come to a forefront now uh, in terms of COVID and also China in terms of this model of trade that uh, now actually having a plan B and a plan C for your logistics and for your uh, for your supply chain is super important, and it needs to be. It needs you need to have drills about it. You need to actually practice it. You have to have, not just have a vague plan. You have to have a detailed plan, and do scenarios, do practice scenarios of implementing that backup plan. Uh, so when the crisis comes, because there will be more crises yet, uh, you're ready, and you've got all your systems in place, and you can continue your business. Uh, and this is where I think people are falling down as they're, 
relying on hope, relying on misinformation, uh, relying on fantasy that things are going to magically turn around. And that's not the case at all. Yeah. Well, I guess at least what we have now is uh, in the US, we don't have the leadership talking about fantasies and we have a uh, even though they're struggling in certain areas, uh, certainly talking about facts and, and realities there now as, as a major country. Um, but yeah, very sad with India with what's going on at the moment. They certainly took the, they relaxed too early by the look of it. <clears throat> and uh, now they've got, a, as you say, a major disaster on their hands. Uh, one of the major upsides here that I think is recognised globally is the speed to which UAE has has jumped into vaccination. I, I think we're somewhere in the 90s now, are we, percent of, yeah. of, uh, of citizens with uh, two vaccinations? So I, I think UAE has done a terrific job uh, with vaccination. I, I've had my vaccinations. I was so impressed at the system. It, it was just efficient. It was The people were extremely polite and helpful. Um, it was fast. Uh, it, it was reliable. Um, Really, they were doing thousands of people, it seemed like thousands of people an hour. Um, and it wasn't oh, like oh, a massive yeah. workforce. Yeah, it was It was just efficient. They thought it through um, and uh, people were just getting on with it. They weren't bickering or complaining or doing politics. People were really working together. Um, uh, it was, I thought it was extremely well done. I mean, the UAE likes to be the forefront of things. It likes to be the best in the world, it likes to you know do things better than it than everyone else. And it's great to have that ambition. I think it's uh, because it, it makes people, it makes the country strive to do better. Uh, and I think the so <clears throat> the, the problem we have is that there's a, still a few challenges in terms of vaccination. That we know that the vaccination saves lives in terms of reduces the rate of death, and we we know that it reduces the rate of serious infection. So, so there are some benefits, but the vaccines do not stop transmission. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and they don't stop you catching the virus. Uh, the other problem is not everybody gets a decent immune response to the vaccines, and some of the vaccines are a lot better at getting an immune response than others. So, at, at the moment, the Pfizer vaccine is coming out on top in terms of being the most effective vaccine. And then I think, I mean, the other mRNA vaccines um, are in that, you know, are, are equally uh, effective. <clears throat> Not far behind is the, the Russian vaccine, the Sputnik vaccine, which has performed extremely well. Uh, AstraZeneca is sort of then going in the middle range. It's effective, but it's not great. And then the, unfortunately, the Chinese vaccines are really uh, coming uh, a very distant last place in the, in terms of the vaccine effectiveness, uh, which is, you know, some effectiveness is better than nothing. So, you know, we're, the people who ma manage to get uh, Sinopharm or Sinovac vaccines around the world, you know, it's still been at least 50% effective and, and maybe more uh, in some cases. Uh, Sinopharm hasn't published any data anywhere in the world. So we don't really, but we've only seen headlines. Uh, but certainly having a, a vaccine is better than not having a vaccine. But we need, and we knew that these first wave or the first batch of vaccines would not be fully effective. So now the world's scrambling to, now we know the state of play in terms of which vaccines are, are most effective. We now know which ones to produce. And the challenge is now we, we need to make 
10 billion vac billion vaccines to vaccinate the world quickly and uniformly. Otherwise, the virus will continue to mutate and it will escape the effects of the vaccine. And this is exactly what we're seeing now. So the the usual human uh, frailty of you know rich versus poor, you know the haves and the have-nots, is happening with the vaccine. That that uh, of the total world's vaccine uh, vaccinations that have been done, forty-seven percent has been done in high-income countries so far. And the developing world has only received 0.2% of the world's vaccinations so far, 0.2%. So we have no chance of getting on top of this virus uh, while there's still international travel and traveling to countries that have had no vaccination with this wild virus mutating rapidly. Uh, these, these mutations will continue to circle the globe and they're becoming seemingly uh, more deadly and definitely more infectious. So th this COVID pandemic is far from over. In fact, it could still take a much worse turn than where we currently are. Well, thanks for all those insights and really do appreciate um, giving us those from a, from a, a medical uh, insights perspective. Uh, you may have seen on LinkedIn that um, we, uh, we do polls, uh, we do surveys pretty regularly and those They've been horrendously successful in terms of getting people to come back to us and give us feedback. So yesterday I, I did a poll amongst a whole range of our clients uh, just very quickly prior to us speaking today. And I asked some questions for some for some insight, for some questions and input from people. And the following questions have come up to me this morning, and I'm going to ask you those questions. Sure. Um, and they may be questions, and I haven't vetted them, so they may be questions you feel comfortable or in a position to answer. Or maybe or maybe not, but knowing no you, problem. I'm probably going to get an answer anyway. Um, okay, so uh, here's one. People are saying the best case uh, end of the pandemic is now 2022. What do you think? So projections are best case is four years away, and it's probably going to be six years away. So, so anyone who's planning for a return to to normal in 2022 is making a major business mistake. Uh, so there needs to be long-term plans in terms of your operations for your business. Do, do not expect that things will, will go back to 2019 way of doing business ever, ever. It's, it's, this has permanently changed the business model throughout the world. By the time we're out of this, things are going to be unrecognisable. Well, you're pretty consistent because I recall about a year or a little bit more ago after the pandemic had struck, I, I contacted you and uh, during a conversation that you and I had had, I asked you, you know, this thing could be around for five or six months, right? And uh, you slam dunked me on the spot and said, Kim, forget it. This is five to six years. That's right. It's, it's, it's very clear. If you look at what's happening around the world, there's good evidence to support that. Look at India. Uh, you know, uh, now we're seeing Thailand getting out of control, and and I think Brazil's also out of control again. I mean, we like don't believe the political spin. There's a it's a now there's so much misinformation. Even the numbers are not always believable. But just look at the trends. Look at what's actually going on. Uh, and what. What we've seen is uh, the epidemiologists have modelled this pandemic. Uh, this pandemic is following the pattern of most other 
respiratory, highly infectious uh, viruses. And you see multiple peaks a year that goes on for quite a few years. So, and that's, uh, I saw this, uh, this, this uh, graph, graphical representation a, a year ago and I, and I was horrified at what I saw. But that's actually, it's exactly what's playing out as we're seeing wave after wave. Um, and what we're seeing, unfortunately, is people are not learning because they're overcome with hope and they're overcome with, with uh, you know, this fantasy that at the end of a wave, that that's it, there's not going to be more. It's like going to the beach with a surfboard and thinking there's only going to be one wave. It's not the case. Uh, and the other thing that people think is that so naturally, we see this shape of a, of a wave in terms of the infection numbers. And a lot of people assume that whatever interventions they've done are the reason why the, the slope's coming down. Natural fact, the slope, the curve goes up and down all by itself. So most interventions that people have done or countries have done have had probably almost no effect or very little effect. Yes, some things we know work like quarantine and social distancing and masks. I mean, these things do help. But uh, we tend to overestimate our ability as humans to control nature and in this case to control a highly infectious virus. And uh, the natural pattern is that there's going to be waves and that we can try and reduce the size of those waves, but the pattern itself will continue. Amazing. Well, we really appreciate that input. Um, one of the other questions I've got here is the virus could migrate to cats and dogs, mutate, and then come back to humans. What do you think? Rubbish? Um, so there is some evidence that, that uh, cats and dogs can, can be infected, but there doesn't really seem to be any evidence that humans can catch infection from cats and dogs. I mean, this, this virus, very strangely, has come out of nowhere and it's highly specific for humans, highly specific that it just targets the human, uh, uh, the human uh, receptors uh, from this spike protein on the virus. But this is not normal behaviour in nature that a virus rapidly suddenly appears that's incredibly spe specific for uh, human genetics. So because of that specificity, the, the likelihood of it going to animals and being a problem is, is low. It's not impossible. Uh, but, I mean, the, the, the animal that's of most concern are, are humans themselves. Okay. Almost sounds, I didn't know better, as if there's some degree of um, suspicion of some sort of engineering there, Ben, but, I mean, that's probably not something you want to comment about. I prefer to stay away from it. But there, a lot of things about this virus are not making sense and a lot of information will come out in the future in terms of what I, I don't know. Uh, maybe this is all a natural thing. Maybe it's, we, we don't know, but it's certainly not behaving uh, by how specific it is for, for the human, uh, human receptors and for the human uh, genetics. It's highly unusual. Wow, that's interesting. Um, you talked before about the wave, and I, and I reflect back again to the case of Australia and New Zealand who have made a name for themselves on how they've uh, flattened out and, and tried to eliminate the virus, but uh, it sounds like they've flattened out the wave to the extent where nobody can afford the, uh, as no, nobody's going to be able to afford the surfboard to, to get on the wave. Anyway, cutting that uh, little bit of misplaced humour out. The other question is, how do we? How do? You, how do you suggest we combat 
the virus in a large, densely populated country like India? So What's the strategy for the government? It's it's a big challenge to 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 do that. I mean the the uh, I mean the first thing the ideal situation is to rapidly roll out a vaccine, and India has not done well at that. Uh, it India has a good healthcare system, even though uh, they're producing a lot of the vaccines. Yeah, they're not been they've they've not really vaccinated their own people very well. Why that is, I'm not sure. Um, I think some regions have done a little better than others, uh, but I think that the, India's vaccination rollout internally has not been what was promised, and I think that's a major reason for the the failing this 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 sort of far into the pandemic uh, that India's India's producing their own AstraZeneca vaccines, uh, and they could have done better at vaccinating their own population. It, in terms of you know wearing masks in terms of communication from the governments. Uh, India's health system is, has a lot of private health. And really, this uh, if a country doesn't have a really strong public health system and uh, in terms of public, the pure public health, like in terms of in terms of immunizations and in terms of disease management, infection, infection, infection control then these are the countries that have suffered. And the United States is another country. It's very much a private system. Uh, there's very small numbers of people employed in public health. And they've been the, the biggest failure of all countries in terms of man managing the pandemic. Even if it was the politics was, were different, the actual public health systems themselves were not nowhere near powered enough to, to deal with this. And, and I'll, I'll say as well, Kim, that uh, medical people like myself, we've had pandemic training for more than 15 years. Uh, in my country, it was sort of compulsory to do pandemic training for years now. And I always looked at it as like, what's this bureaucracy that's wasting my time? Like, And so full credit to, <laughs> to the people who made that decision. They certainly knew, knew that something was coming. Um, so, I mean, there was, so yeah, I mean, the lack of public health in India is, is a, uh, a problem. Uh, and I think education levels, and I also think that, you know, the government approach and the communication approach is really important. And once you start to get governments trying to cover things up or delete negative tweets, which has just happened in India the last few days, uh, once you start to get a government operating in this authoritarian way, once that means the communication uh, starts to become uh, dysfunctional and people stop trusting and believing what the government says and people take matters into their own hands. Uh, and I, I think that's that maybe is a factor as well. So in a dense population, it's always going to be difficult. But China managed it, so uh, yeah. it can be done. One sentence answer. How does Brazil sort itself out? Oh, I don't know, revolution. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, People rise up. The government shown uh, absolutely you know, ridiculous approach to it. It's just overpopulation and uh, too much poverty, too much gap between uh, rich and poor. You know, the the system the last twenty years has really been about building new billionaires and billionaires getting wealthier and winner take all. And we've seen a huge gap now between rich and poor. We've seen the decimation of the middle class. And this is what you get. 
when you destroy a, a community, which is what's been happening. That once once we hit uh, uh, some potholes, uh, once we get off that smooth freeway onto a rough road, the whole system breaks down. Okay. Uh, two other questions. One, I suspect, is from our global head of research, Andrea, who's based here in the uh, in the Gulf. Um, and her question, and bearing in mind she rides a uh, electric scooter to work, is the public transport system safe to use? Well, if you're wearing a mask, if you're uh, trying to practice social distancing as much as realistically possible, uh, if the virus numbers are not trending upwards rapidly, uh, if if it's a public system, transport system that you can open a window because ventilation is super important, uh, then it's you know you have to get on with your life somehow. Uh, you ha- you need transport. If you don't have your own transport, that you still have to get transport. So you, you can just take the precautions as best as you can and make sure you get vaccinated. So I think if you if you're vaccinated and you're taking precautions, uh, then you have to get on with your life. Awesome. Final question. As hospitals run out of bed space, are there any short-term substitutes for ventilators that patients can use to get oxygen or air in the meantime? And when I talk about any particular country here, uh, this country in particular has has ample uh, bed space and medical medical supplies. Uh, But for those countries who who don't, and I think we're talking India at least at this stage, possibly Brazil as well, and others, uh, are there any alternatives to putting people in hospital and giving them oxygen? There's not really. I mean, what what we've seen with the virus is that once it overwhelms a health system, uh, the death rate increases from 1% to about 10%. So, and that's what we'll start to see now in India. That's what we saw in Italy. And to some extent, we saw it in the US and the UK that, once, once there's no more beds, once, once the oxygen starts to run out, once there's very few doctors and nurses because they're all infected, uh, and this is really the critical thing that countries have to try and prevent, and this is the main reason for the lockdowns. This is the main reason for quarantine and border control. It's actually to prevent the health systems from being overwhelmed because that's when you see 10 times increase in, in the death rate. People are always going to die from this. It's just a matter of how many and, and how many are uh, relatively preventable. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, it's, that's a mindful of information and I know our audience will be very um, pleased to, to be able to get this extra input from you, from somebody who's not only an entrepreneurial business operator in, in the area of, of medicine, but also a clinician, a physician, somebody who's practicing. It has been now for, I don't know how many years I can mention, but it must be about uh, 30 by now, Ben. And uh, you're, hey, you're there. <laughs> but your openness and, and candid uh, feedback and answering of questions, uh, I genuinely do respect and appreciate, and I'm sure our audience do as well. This is uh, this is a horrendous uh, issue globally, as I say, it's existential, it's everywhere, it's affecting everybody. I, just before, I know you've got some a practice to run today, but I, I just wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions related to the oh. logistics sector. Um, no 
from your perspective, um, you know, and you've spoken with erudite accuracy around uh, the need for nearshoring and the and need not to rely on particular countries uh, for supplies and one thing and another and, and bringing uh, the supply chains a lot shorter so that there's not such dramatic uh, disruption to supply chains. Um, if you could reflect on, on your knowledge uh, on on supply chains moving forward in the medical field and brought more broadly, if you like, what do you think some of the lasting changes are that we're going to see specifically as a result of this pandemic? You, you have talked about nearshoring more and getting closer to supply and things. Any other effects that you see for those in the logistics and supply chain listening today? So I, I think logistics and supply chain uh, I, I can see it becoming part of the C-suite. I, I can see there being a, a chief logistics officer, C, CLO, really become, coming to a really important part of the business. Um, the supply chain and logistics was always back office. It was the you know, it was very unfashionable part of business that was done by people that were you know didn't really get much respect or acknowledgement, but. Now I really think that supply chain is more important than marketing, and uh, because if you can't get the if you can't get your your uh, products in to to do your to your manufacturing or to deliver your services, then you're completely crippled. And I think I think there'll be a lot more expertise uh, being developed on new innovation in terms of supply chain, and I think this is where using technology is super important. Uh, I think being able to track your supply chain is very important, and we have the technology now to do that, so you know exactly where your products are coming from and exactly where they are located, and being able to do that down to the, each batch uh, is is so important because uh, uh, because things can can get lost. And I think also in terms of supply chain and logistics, I think security of your of your valuable products. Uh, is now really coming to the forefront that uh, if things deteriorate and it's possible, uh, I think we'll see you know uh, theft of of, uh, of of valuable uh suppliers. I think we're going to see you know the black market trade in in some things. I think it's happening already. Uh, so I think you're securing your supply chain is important, being able to track it using technology, uh, being able to do predictive analysis using uh, you know, some of the, the newer forms of artificial intelligence, uh, you know, be careful with that. Uh, but I, I do think that this is a way that the the uh, the field will evolve. And also, I think, you know, doing supply chain from an office in a building in a in a central business district, I think that's those days are gone. Even from a warehouse to a certain point, I mean, the aspects of the role, some aspects of the role can be done remotely from anywhere. Uh, and I do think the supply chain and logistics industry needs to really coordinate together and really communicate with each other, uh, maybe form an association or professional body and, and really cooperate as a, a distinct group of professionals uh, rather than uh, being just sort of you know, isolated and being part of a company. I think actually forming a professional body and, and getting some standards and protocols, and and really trying to uh, trying to, to make the whole process more efficient and more accountable. Uh, I think this is the, the way forward. Because uh, this 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 problem is uh, you know we can't rely on the old ways anymore. That they're gone. 
Uh, we have to find new, new ways of doing this uh, with less manpower and with more technology and, and much more certainty. Right. Well, it's extremely interesting to hear, um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one on, on today on the, on the show that's really interested in your perspective and your point of view, uh, the way that you've interpreted what's going on, and, and I must say you, you're by far the most uh, aware and of supply chain issues of anybody I've ever met in the medical practitioner. So well done. You've obviously been exposing yourself to much broader economic uh, influences and factors. And I know you've gained about five or six serious um, qualifications in the last 10 years, uh, both from a business perspective as well as medical perspective. So uh, I understand where that's coming from. Um, look, to, to wrap up, uh, I, I guess you mentioned the way that the, the rise of, and I think you did right, uh, I mean, logistics and supply chain now, I can assure you from the clients that we have in 13 offices around the world, uh, last 22 years dealing with many of the top thousand companies in the, in the world, both in logistics and supply chain, um, logistics and supply chain roles are becoming much more influential in the running and in the direction of companies. But I guess here's something from my perspective is that uh, with, with the knowledge that somebody like you has uh, and, and the rise of the medical profession uh, and, its, and its need and its requirement of, of from the world to, to guide us through this sort of uh, situation. And as you say, it's just going to be ongoing to a certain degree for, for the foreseeable future. Um, I personally would see medical people being usurped onto um, boards as well and into strategic positions in companies. And, um, I mean, how do you think there's much of a segue going on? Do you see that's a future for people in the medicine uh, field, in the healthcare field? So I, I think it's a really good idea, and I think that should be happening. I think the smart companies will be, will be cons at least consulting more to medical people like myself and, and others. And I think the real danger, though, is to be hiring yes people. Um, sometimes there's cases of uh, doctors going into the corporate world and sit, sitting in their corporate office and just ticking boxes and signing forms and agreeing to everything. Uh, so I think it's really important that there has to be really robust discussion. It has to be very frank and fearless about what what's planned ahead and what some of the problems might be. Uh, just having someone there to say we've got a, a medical person on our staff is, is not enough. They really have to utilise uh, that person's knowledge and they have to be prepared to, to listen to information that uh, may not sort of fit their current mindset. Awesome. So I suppose the final question from my perspective would be, and I usually ask this around for people joining the supply chain and advice from supply chain executives uh, about young people or midlife people joining the supply chain. Let's talk about the healthcare profession and medicine in general. Um, what would your advice be for somebody who's maybe graduating um, and they're not necessarily graduating with a uh, medical degree, but that they have seen the vital importance of people in the healthcare sector um, and the heroism and the life-saving activity that's been going on and they're motivated to, to become involved in that sector? What would your advice be as a, as a level of entry and, and different ways of penetrating and joining uh, that most noble of professions? I mean, I think the healthcare has always been very supply chain dependent, 
And and if you make a mistake in healthcare, people die. It's not just people, you don't sell something. People 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 get sick and they die. So the supply chain in healthcare is, is, has to be very accurate and has to be a lot of certainty. And the goods can't get contaminated. Uh, you know, a lot of healthcare products are refrigerated as well. So I think there's good opportunities in in refrigerated uh, supply chain. Um, I think it's it's a specialized area, but it's not that complicated to to learn from a supply chain perspective. It's more the approach that it, it suits people who who are you know very particular about getting things correct and on time. Uh, and uh, and I don't want to say obsessive, but it, there has to be a certain level of of uh, attention to detail. To, to do it properly, uh, but the rewards are great. Um, there's a lot of respect within the healthcare uh, community for supply chain, particularly now. Uh, it's an area that's been done badly in the past and, and not been properly resourced. Uh, in fact, they had this uh, way of doing supply chain called just-in-time. I don't know if that's in other industries as, as well or not, but I mean, that's any organization that had a just-in-time uh, system supply chain, I think, is, is, has already hit some major problems. So, uh, so I think you know, really understanding, uh, understanding where your supply chain, what the links are, where the vulnerabilities are, uh, is, is super important in healthcare because it's, it's complex now, and uh, and rapidly changing and rapidly evolving. And you need it's not just only healthcare. I mean. They, so many of these fields are merging, you know, healthcare and, and technology are merging and, uh, and healthcare and, and communications and marketing are merging. I mean, there's lots of crossover skills. I think there's someone worked in the healthcare sector that they could, they could bring from other industries and they could certainly use in the future in, in, in other fields. So I think if you, if you, people are interested in doing it, I think it's a really good opportunity that I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of need for it. Because in, during the pandemic, the supply chain has just been so overwhelmed, like not just PPE, but vaccines and so many other things. And we've been overwhelmed by the pandemic. So the regular supply chain has sort of gone uh, without the normal resources. So, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly opportunities uh, for, for people to get into that field. Right. Well, thanks again for the input, Ben. I really do appreciate you're taking the, the time early in the morning. Um, Dr. Ben Hansen, business leader, entrepreneur, uh, clinician, physician, uh, and uh, and disruptor. I think that certainly we can we could call you that. And one of the straightest shooters I've ever met in, in any field. Really do appreciate your uh, your input and your advice. And uh, I'm sure I speak on the rest of our our audience and uh, and those listening that uh, we appreciate everything you're doing, that everybody in your field in healthcare and medicine, first responders, as we all, always say to everybody, uh, stay distance, keep the masks on, wash your hands, and uh, look after each other. Ben Hanson, thanks very much for coming. Thank you, Kim. It's been a pleasure.